Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training. I'm an avid blogger on all things dog behavior, and you can also catch me on YouTube as well as teaching online courses for dog owners. You can find all of that and more at journeydogtraining.com. And today I'm chatting with Kim Brophy, the author of Meet Your Dog, which I'm currently listening to on Audible, and it's awesome. Um, And she is also the owner of Dog Door Behavior Center in Asheville, North Carolina. You might remember Kim from our episode on ethology, which you should definitely check out if you didn't listen to yet. And in that ethology episode, we promised to come back for an episode all about dominance. And I'm super excited to say that this is it. So let's get into it, Kim, right away with talking a little bit about kind of your background on education and refresher on what ethology is, just so we kind of can set the stage for um, for this conversation. Sure. Yeah. Um, thanks again for having me. Super fun to be back. Uh, we could have obviously talked for hours last time. So uh, it's nice <laughs> to be back and pick up where we left off. Um, so ethology is the study of animal behavior. Um, you know, historically, ethology was looking at animal behavior uh, of animals in their natural habitat, their natural environment, and kind of observation based and data based, you know, collecting data about what those natural behaviors are. Um, and uh, oftentimes gets associated with things like um, that are, you know, like Conrad Lorenz's work, for instance, where we're looking at a lot of like what was called fixed action patterns and then later became called modal action patterns and releasing stimuli for those behaviors and kind of very biologically based view of, um, of behavior as opposed to looking at how we manipulate behavior through maybe applied behavior analysis, for instance, as kind of a, a, a different um, perspective. So it's neither negating learning um, nor focusing so much on learning, um, but it does look at behavior from both an immediate and then like approximate view where you're looking at what is the purpose of that behavior in this moment for that animal? And then also how is that helpful for that animal's uh, survival over the course of its life and its reproduction? And then how is it helpful for that animal's uh, genetic line and then the species and how does it fit into the ecosystem? So um, a lot of different kinds of levels of perspective within ethology. And then my background is in applied ethology, which is a super tiny field, unfortunately. Um, but it's it's largely focusing on animals in zoos, animals in farms, um, uh, mostly agriculture. That's where most applied ethologists are working, where you're looking at what happens when you take an animal that is under some form of express human control, whether that is um, you know on a, on a farm or even just genetically. So animals that are genetically domesticated, uh, and looking at what happens when our two species and all of the behavior of both of our two species ends up um, crossing paths and meeting, and and particularly in captivity, what happens for those animals that are are under our express control. So uh, I focus primarily and pretty exclusively on dogs in that regard. And um, yeah, I think I think that basically covers it. We're just looking at what happens when when those two worlds and all those uh, behaviors and instincts and biologies and uh, variables cross paths and meet each other. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, I think most people will understand pretty quickly why that is so relevant to today's topic. So I think the next kind of thing I wanted to go through was a little bit of kind of a brief history of, uh, brief-ish, of kind of the story of dominance as it relates to our understanding of dogs and dog behavior and dog training, because there's been a lot of kind of back and forth and a lot of extremes um, over the last 50 years or so in our understanding, so... 
Take it away. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of the models on dominance were originally um, you know, looking at wolves and wolves that were in captivity. And uh, so there are a number of obvious problems there. You know, we're not looking at apples to apples when we're talking about domestic dogs and we're talking about wolves. So the behavior is not the same there. And also the captivity in itself, we can really appreciate. And later on, we were able to look back at those studies and say, okay, well, like, you know, captivity is also affecting that, which we'll come back to that point in a minute, because that is one of the central points about what happens with our dogs as well. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the dog behavior models were kind of built on this, like, be the alpha wolf, you know, make sure that you are, um, you know, putting the dog in their place and that you're the alpha and not the omega and all of this. And, and that really, I think, became popularized and became, in our mind, was like, this is what an animal is going to understand. You know, you have to submit through force and consistent patterns of force, winning altercations, proving to the dog that you're dominant over them. And kind of under this whole attitude of, you know, the dog wants to be dominant over you. And so, so many of their behaviors are reflecting their desire to dominate you in some way. Um, where now, you know, if we're really talking about this uh, scientifically, we can appreciate that like, actually most animals are not out there vying to be, um, you know, in control of, of others and, and all of the circumstances. And it's, it's not this just kind of cutthroat bloodbath fight for the top that we've, we've been kind of pitched that idea, particularly in the dog behavior world historically. Um, so I think we can all appreciate that there are a lot of problems with that uh, that basic model. And, and I think even as we've learned more in, about even evolution over the course of the decades, I mean, Darwin himself had a little bit more of like a, um, brutal, uh, kind of perspective on how survival worked. And I think, uh, now we've realized it's not so much that it's, it's a war as kind of, um, a, uh, descent with modification and constant improving upon one theme or another. And yes, there's all of these competitive forces that are working to try to win out, whether that's a tree to get the best spot of sunlight in a particular forest, or whether that's an animal who's wanting to make sure that they're securing, you know, breeding rights within a, a certain territory territory or something like that. Um, but then what happened was uh, sometime probably in the last 15 years, as we, we moved away for a variety of reasons from that model, because we were focusing exclusively on, increasingly exclusively on applied behavior analysis and the idea of um, it just doesn't apply, right? So like, you know, dogs aren't wolves and they aren't wolves. So, but then we'll just say everything related to dominance is not relevant to our life with our pets. Um, and in part in response to how uh, many problems were created in pet homes by people trying to extrapolate that model to their relationships with their pets. Where they're creating this competitive family dynamic and social atmosphere that was really, you know, underlying all sorts of other kinds of behavior problems that would come out. So it definitely needed to be addressed and resolved in a variety of ways. But what happened is we, as we often do, we kind of go from one extreme to the other in the pendulum and we threw out the, a lot of the concepts and understandings um, that dominance could help us appreciate. Um, at the same time, while positive reinforcement, thankfully, was moving in and taking more of a center stage to replace a lot of those more archaic physical confrontational methods based on that dominance ideology. 
Um, we also started looking at street dogs. So um, people were starting to uh, look at street dogs in third world countries. And what is the behavior that they're exhibiting? And what does it look like for them? Is it really this like pack family thing? No, we're not seeing pack families. We're seeing looser alliances. We're seeing, you know, smaller groups or pairs or companions and then a much looser social structure. And so we said, well, that's what we should then be modeling our interactions with dogs after is that there's, there's actually no group structure. There's no group psychology going on there. Um, and I think uh, that's where we have to go back and look at those original wolf studies for a different kind of insight to say, but street dogs are not captive animals. Wolves in their natural habitat are not captive animals. The wolves that were in captivity that were studied and originally built upon from our observations were captive animals. Pet dogs are captive animals. And wow. so it's one of the ways I like to think about this. And I talk about this in the book is like it's for a lot of dogs finding themselves in a human household with maybe different family members, children, possible roommates, grandma, cats, lizards, dogs, whatever, is kind of like a reality TV house. You just get thrown in with who you get, and then you're just trying to figure it out. And in a way, what happens is it starts to employ our basic social psychology uh, skills, instincts, perceptions to navigate a complicated social terrain that's captive and limited so that we feel safe and so that we feel successful and functional. Um, and, and it is complicated to say the least. Yeah. 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 It certainly is. And I think one of the, you know, we were talking about this before we got on, but one of the things I was excited about with doing this episode is kind of working on threading a couple of these needles, you know, because I know when I was first coming up in the dog training world, I've only been a trainer since about 2014, um, most of the rhetoric that I was hearing was very much so along the lines of like, well, yeah, dominance is pretty completely irrelevant to dogs. And then a couple of years in, and I, I think part of this is the industry changing. And part of it is just as I got more and more into it, I was seeking more and more thoughtful and in-depth information. Um, you know, then I started hearing more about like, well, yeah, dominance exists and here's, where it is. And I feel like, or, you know, and here's what that might look like. But I think in general, when I'm on kind of the internet or engaging with friends, the vast majority of my non-dog people friends are still stuck back in like 2005, where you have to like alpha roll the dog and growl in its face or something because it's being dominant. I mean, I, I'm sure you see the same thing. I can't tell you how many of my clients um, intake forms say that their dog is alpha and that's the problem that we're going to fix. And then it feels like there's this huge disconnect between there's that, which seem, which is incorrect. And then there's the way that some trainers talk, which is just that like, oh, it's completely irrelevant, which also isn't quite right. Right. Yeah. Jump in on all that. I mean, um, cause I've ridden the same road, right? I mean, I've been in the field for 20 years and I've watched it. I mean, when I was in college, Monks of New Skeet was like newish 
And like, that was like one of the most cutting edge publications available, you know, and it was, and that was the thing. And they were like evolved thinking about dominance because they thought, Hey, you could even like listen to what the animal has to say too, which was progressive for the time. Um, and I think that let's go back to like bare bones. Let's just go back to like the ethological definition of dominance really quick. And, you know, you'll hear people talk about this base scientific definition, but I think it helps, like you said, like, let's flesh it out. Let's, let's thread some of these needles. So dominance scientifically is control of resources. Resources are not just concrete, that bone, that couch, that mating, you know, female, whatever resources you can step back and put in a bigger global lens if you're going to use my legs analogy of learning environment genetics and self you'd look at resources in your environment it's an external circumstances kind of component here that we have and so let's look at uh dominance as control of resources slash environment slash conditions situation okay so if we're if we're going to look at that then we have to immediately address the discrepancy between dominance and domineering. Because if you come to work for me every day and I have your paycheck, I am dominant over you in this environment such that I can tell you, Kayla, pick up that napkin if you work in my restaurant, if you'd like the paycheck. So I have control of something that you need. And in theory, if I am good at my job and, I, and I'm going to have a stable, successful healthy business, then I will also be good at running my restaurant, which means I am good at strategizing both long-term and short-term. I am good about making decisions and responding to circumstances with confidence and initiative when they arrive. I am good at maintaining an atmosphere that is consistent where everyone knows what the rules are. How many breaks are you allowed to take during the day versus not, as opposed to you not knowing if I'm going to get in trouble today for peeing three times, whereas yesterday, you know, I didn't because it's a really inconsistent atmosphere. Um, and, and ultimately, how safe you feel at work in a situation where, in theory, I'm supposed to provide a stable, temporary social environment of you coming to work every day has to do with how well we patternize my control of the situation, right? So if you come in every day and I am just a crappy boss and like sometimes I'm there, sometimes I'm not there, you're like, today there's only three people on the schedule instead of 10, how can I do my job? And I'm also supposed to be training these three people and you didn't tell me we were having an event today and then someone comes in and they're mad about something and i am only been working here for two weeks and you're expecting me to know what how to deal with this customer. Like all of that, what it creates for you as an employee where you don't have the ability to decisively act upon these circumstances in the environment is anxiety. All right, so now let's move over for a second and talk about dogs. They can't operate a restaurant. And I mean that figuratively in that they can't operate the pet home. They don't have the resources in themselves, the faculties, the knowledge, that information 
literally the ability, given the fact that they're captive, to take any kind of executive action over the circumstances that they end up facing in our human world with our human expectations, our human lifestyle, schedules, rules, whatever it might be, however consistent or inconsistent we are, we usually aren't great upper management for them because we don't make things clear and we don't say, oh, you as an employee, this is what you need to be successful and do things well and operate in a way that makes sense for you. If we don't step into our intrinsic responsibility of we're in this shared boat together, that that animal has no option of leaving and we are leaving that animal at a deficit for their sense of psychological safety. And I would argue that the most important resource for any animal on the earth and the most important motivation at any given time before anything else can matter is safety. And if I don't feel safe, I don't feel like I know what the heck is going on. I can't really do anything else well. And so I think the fact that we threw out the baby with the bathwater and said, we aren't going to talk about what is dominance, means that we've left dogs at a huge loss. And if we even look to nature for answers, get away from dogs, get away from people, you go look at any other social species, the stable, successful social groups know who to look to for information, guidance, and decisive action and for making sure that stability is maintained within the group and we're all on the same page. And at the end of the day, that comes down to trust. Because if it's stable and predictable patterns of responses and and the sense that I can hang my hat on that guy to know what's up and to know what to do when I don't know what to do. And we've all conceded to the fact that our best chance of survival is to allow this individual to make those decisions for us, then we all feel better at the end of the day. And similarly, when we lose that player or we can't identify that player, which is often the boat that our dogs are in because we aren't teaching people anymore how to be a parent, how to be upper management, how to fill those shoes well in the positive reinforcement world, dogs literally are coming apart with anxiety because they don't they don't feel like they're safe. They feel like, look, if nobody else is driving this shared social bus that we're on, maybe I should grab the wheel. And you get a lot of neurotic grabbing of the wheel that's not coming from wanting to dominate you or be the alpha dog. It's the sense that the bus is going off the road. This person doesn't seem to know what's going on. They're not aware of the circumstances that are going on around us. And if I don't, I'm not safe. And that's what I really want people to know is that dominance in social animals is about survival, which is about safety. And it's really about upper management and consistent patterns of stability. On that note of safety, social animals evolve to depend on each other and work cooperatively, not independently in order to survive. That doesn't work unless you have agreements, rules, structures in place. So if we're not on the same page and there's discord, we won't be as successful. Social bonding, relationships, and dependency all foster these connections between individuals so that they can work more successfully to hunt, rear, defend, etc. together. So as social animals, 
we can't get on the same page unless there are agreements about parameters, processes, expectations, etc. Those are established and maintained through social education for the young and consistent ritualized signaling to preserve the stability of the group's culture as an operating society, whether it's small or large, whether there's just a few or many. And without these contracts understood and maintained, in which we can all get on board, the functional group agenda without clarity and understanding of expectations and guidelines, the whole group is in jeopardy. So group welfare equals survival in social animals. There is, to be trite, no I in T-E-A-M. And in social animals, it's all about teamwork or bust. Without social order, individuals literally fear for their lives on an instinctual level. So if that social ship is rocking, we're all in danger. And because, as we were talking about, safety is the most primary motivation, this is a really big deal. In captivity, these phenomena boil over in a hot pot because all these instincts are there, but resources are limited, space is small, options are few, and conditions are really frustrating. So without order, you just get madness. Yeah. And I think kind of similar to dominance, I feel like... um structure and leadership were kind of concepts that were thrown out along with dominance. And I think that's because sometimes structure was a euphemism for creating for 23 hours a day. Right. Absolutely. And and leadership was a euphemism for a choke chain and a two foot lead. And alpha roles. Mm -hmm. And alpha roles and biting your dog on the ear, which I literally did in fifth grade because that's what our trainer told us to do. (laughs) Right. Um, Which is just like a great way to get a fifth grader bitten in the face. I am so lucky I still have my ear. Right. Um, God, what a what a good dog. Um, (laughs) What a good dog, exactly. Bless her soul. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, and I think I hear more on the sport dog side of things. They talk more about leadership and structure than I think kind of the general positive reinforcement community. And then similarly, I think kind of in the general pet world it it it, it's it also feels really polarized where i think a lot of i've got a friend a very good friend here um who is really resistant to the idea of using a leash because she feels like that's too restrictive for her dog um we've had some long arguments about it um and yeah it's just it's interesting how much some of these things are all kind of intertwined and people tend to be so extreme about them you know And like in this like leadership and structure as a way to reduce anxiety, you know, as an example here, um, no one else can see this and you you can can now. I have window film up. Um, And that is because my border collie was making it his job to growl at the pigeons that land in my third floor floor apartment patio. Um, And it was making all of us anxious and all of us stressed. So, you know, now we have window film up so he can't see them. And when he goes over and starts trying to look for them, I give him something else to do instead. Um, I give him another job. And that is kind of exactly what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and there's a million ways to do it, right? So if we're looking at this as a concept, I mean, again, the trainers spend so much time in the weeds about how do you do something, not why are you doing something and what's the reasoning and the need that we're really answering or meeting in terms of welfare or functionality. <clears throat> and I think, um, you know, last time we talked, you were talking about the choice and control paradox. And so let's bring that back in because now I'm stealing that term from you forevermore because it's so great. Um, this is a great example 
of exactly why we were talking about it last time. So going back to the restaurant analogy for a minute, like if I give you as a waitress the choice and control to wait any table you want, you don't have a section and you can, um, you know, put whatever you want to on the ticket Whatever they want to order will make it, right? Like, so there's, now we're going to just create, like, what are the potential ripples that we might come into? Okay, so you're like, okay, but like, I don't know, like, am I responsible for that table or not? Because I can just pick my tables and then there's three other waitresses and everyone's picking their tables. And now all of a sudden there's this anxiety about, well, I wanted the eight top because I can make bigger tips on the eight top. And now we haven't preemptively controlled the resources, environment in a way that is organized and more stabilized. So we're going to start having more social conflict between our members in that shared social group that during the day when we're in that, that particular work environment, because we haven't delegated anything. Um, and so you may have anxiety because someone comes up and they're like, well, why didn't you get that table? And you're like, well, I thought you were going to get that table. And they're like, I don't know why you thought I was going to get that table. We're simply having something like sections resolve that whole issue. Then say you just take whatever order you want from the people. They say, I want you to make me, you know, Alaskan King crab. And you go back to the kitchen. And you're like, they want Alaskan King crab because we're not even using menus because that would be way too proactively organized and controlling of the environment. And we're wanting to give our waitresses control and, and choice in their environment. Cause we really believe in freedom here. And so you go back there and you're like, well, she wants Alaskan King crab. And the guy's like, well, we don't have an Alaskan King crab in there, you know? And then you're like, Oh, okay, well this is awkward. So can you go to the store and get it? No, I don't have time. I'm cooking all these other orders. And then you have to go back out and tell the people, I'm sorry. I know I have the freedom to take whatever you want, you know, as an order, but we don't have Alaskan King crab. Like I know these are far-fetched examples, but the reason I feel far-fetched is because we would never, let that happen in a restaurant environment and any restaurant that operates that way will be closed in short order because you can't manage multiple social players and allow everyone to do whatever they want to do and have it function cohesively and successfully for the group. Everyone suffers when nobody has a plan. And it's kind of like, you know, say we all end up out to sea on a, on a dinghy because our cruise ship is is sinking. Okay. Now you have six random people who've never met on a dinghy in the middle of the ocean. What happens next? Does everyone just do what they think is best in the situation? Or is there suddenly this, this need, need to figure out who of us has the best knowledge, information, decisive initiative, confidence to manage and calibrate the circumstances we are about to face? Oh, good. This guy's a survivalist. We nominate you. Oh, we figured out tomorrow you're an egomaniac asshole. You're fired. We're going to go with this other person. You know, and so this whole idea of who is the best suited to manage the environment is absolutely quintessential to any social structure. And, um, you know, I think that we, like, like you're saying, we, we tend to have these two extremes of, uh, this idea, like either it's a war for dominance or, um, or it's just not even there and it doesn't matter. And all choice and control and freedom is beautiful and perfect and optimal that neither one is going to get us to the truth of it, which is everything in nature. And this is why I love ethology is everything is, if it's a thing in nature through generations, especially cross multiple species, it's because it's important. Otherwise 
that would have gotten thrown out because nature keeps something that's really not helpful. It, it, it picks what is functional in, in the environment under the pressures <clears throat> and it selects for that. So this system that we have in place is what makes social animals more successful in their groups. And we can devise, you know, multiple different ways where that can look different, you know, um, depending on the species, they might have different kinds of rules. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's all going towards making everyone feel better. And so I feel like we are failing our dogs these days by not realizing that they are anxious when we don't step up and fill those shoes because they are not in a position as a captive animal to drive that said bus or that boat, that dinghy or that restaurant. And when we fail to step up and demonstrate initiative towards circumstances in the environment, like, oh, don't worry, I know what that is. Don't worry, I have a plan. Don't worry, this is how this works. They find themselves in a modern pet environment that they don't understand. They're not naturally prepared for. And then we really leave them hanging out to try. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can think of, you know, a fair number of behavior problems that I see where, um, you know, just more consistency and structure is super helpful. So like one of the examples I think of a lot, I, I admin a pandemic puppy raising Facebook group. And we see a lot of issues with belt training, which is an awesome idea something I'm considering doing for potty training my next puppy. But where it can end up kind of going wrong is when the puppy realizes like, oh, I can just get to bring this and then I get to go outside and stops just using it for potty training. And I don't know enough about bell training to really tell you exactly what you need to do differently to avoid that problem. But it's so stressful for everyone involved. Um, and one of the things that I know Sarah Strumming talks about a lot when she's talking about consent and choice and control for her dogs is don't give your dog a choice or ask your dog a question if you're not willing to accept no or, an, you know, as an answer. So, you know, if your dog is a little bit nervous of the car and you are on your way to the vet and the dog needs to get in the car, that is not the time to kind of walk up with your dog off leash and practice the like, hey, are you ready to get in the car sort of routine that you might have worked on? You know, that's the time where it's like, no, we're going to, I'm going to just, we're, we're getting you in the car now. All right. Um, well, and the same kind of anxiety that toddlers and young children will exhibit when a parent is not being a parent. I mean, the over-permissive parenting model has taken a lot of heat in recent years. It was built on a great sentiment of like, let them, you know, figure it out. Don't tell them no. Don't give them boundaries. But kids are like, I don't know how this human thing works. I don't know what the rules are when I go into a restaurant or when I'm crossing a street to keep me safe. And so like we we create anxiety in children or dogs when we don't have those answers to the question. I mean, but part of what makes you feel good when you do go to work is to, when you go into that restaurant, is they're like, oh yeah, so this is how it works. You just do this, 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 and this, and this. Oh really? That's it? That's my job? I don't have to worry about anything else? Yep, that's the thing. That's, the, that's what you do. And the clarity, the predictability in that has high value towards decreasing anxiety and increasing the sense in an individual that all is right in one's world. Oh yeah. You cannot minimize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so important. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been lamenting about a problem where I have two or three options that all seem roughly equivalent. And it's just like, God, I just want someone to tell me, you know, cause I'm driving myself crazy trying to decide 
between these two or three options. Um, and sometimes it's trivial, you know, sometimes it's like, do I want the, the cheesecake or the, the ice cream for dessert? You know, that doesn't matter all that much, but like I'm in a position, my lease is ending in about two weeks. And I'm trying to decide <laughs> whether to renew or where to move. And I have a couple different options. They all have these really big different pros cons. I literally, I had to text my mom yesterday. I had heartburn for the first time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really, like, they're all fine options. I just want someone to tell me which one. And, like, unfortunately, part of being an adult human being is you don't always get someone to tell you what you are going to right. choose. Right. Um, but, yeah, I can imagine for our dogs that um, that yeah, well, has to feel really nice at times. Part, part of that, so let's take your situation there, is if there was some information that suddenly presented itself that made it clear that one thing was advantageous, that would be a relief to you. Because then you would have additional insight into circumstances that would have a direct and meaningful impact on how your life would go. We have a lot of that additional insight about those kinds of circumstances for our dogs that we simply don't provide to them. So say you have, you know, a party of eight children coming to the house for a Halloween, you know, festivity or whatever. Not that that would be happening in COVID, but before COVID and after COVID. And you have a puppy. And you're like, you don't have a plan. You haven't set anything up to tell him how to interact with these strange creatures in these weird costumes. There's no pattern that you have planned to put in place. Even if you're going to go at it all positive and you're just going to throw a bunch of treats all over the floor, that puppy may be experiencing a very high level of anxiety going, what do I do? What do I do? And when we give dogs, actually that whole situation about greeting people, when we give, I believe dogs absolutely get the consent about whether they interact. However, I may create the option, well, I may remove the option for them to interact on the front end. Say, why don't you watch this so I can show you how it works with someone coming in my front door. I'll put you on the other side of a baby gate with a bone at first, totally positive, but why don't you watch this rather than try to figure it out in real time when you have this huge sudden environmental contrast of someone coming in the front door. Let me give you a minute to watch and observe that's also part of being a social animal is the ability to learn through observation and, and see my body language being that you're an expert in reading body language, facial expression and emotions of human and other animals to see that I'm actually quite comfortable with this person who came in and we're going to come in and we're going to sit down and I'm going to be having a lovely social interaction with that person. And then once the sudden environmental contrast is passed and you've had a chance to gather some information so that I can fill in that blank telling you that a friend coming in the door is, a, not your job. You can go on lunch break for a minute, have a little bone. I don't need you to protect me from them. I'm going to sit down, show you that I'm comfortable with this person. Then I'm going to let you back into the room so that you may join us. And if then at that point you would like to join us, that's up to you. But sometimes it's just those subtleties of timing about when we're giving them the choices that they may find themselves in a position of being overwhelmed and then responding because of that overwhelmment to more um, visceral kind of fight or flight, immediate you know, survival reactions of like, oh my gosh, there's a threat in our territory. What do we do? And they're coming from that aroused, concerned place in their first impression and going, do I go forward? Do I go back? As the person's leaning over and reaching out a hand, that seems threatening to me. You're sitting here saying, good dog, that's my friend Bob, but I'm not, re you know, we're, the whole setup is different and it's not controlled. So something as simple as putting a pattern in place, ding dong, neighbor, 
Over here, phone, wait behind the baby gate. Bob, come on in, sit down on my couch. Wonderful, how are you doing today? Oh, Bob's been here five minutes. Open the gate, come on out and say hi to Bob. The predictability quotient and the fact that the dog can hang their hat on ding dong means you take initiative. I don't have to figure out what to do. You've made the decision. It's all good for me, it's butter. I trust the pattern. The pattern repeats itself. I know I'm okay. And, and we yeah. don't do enough of that for dogs. And I tell clients, you can almost make arbitrary patterns in, in some situations as long as you're consistent with them and as long as they're answering that need and concern in the moment. Yeah, consistency was the word I kept thinking of. And, you know, again, just kind of bringing it back to places where I've seen it for myself. Um, my dog, Barley's door barking behavior in particular has gotten a lot worse over time as I have been un- inconsistent with my approaches to it. Um, you know, I've like, I like lost my temper at him a couple times. And then other times I generally try to send him to his crate and give him food. And it's gotten worse every, it gets far, far worse every time I'm inconsistent with that door behavior. And, and, and I think, you know, I always want to acknowledge that like, yeah, this stuff is hard. Um, it is really hard to always be in like, oh my God, I had no idea that a FedEx paper package was coming today. And now I have to like grab my treats and like, and I'm a professional dog trainer. I have treats everywhere. And yet it's still really hard to get up um, to speed on a lot of these things. Uh, I love you saying that Kayla, because I think that's something that gives us an inroads to help people appreciate what we're looking at. And that if you have a different perspective of dominance as something becoming something your dog can hang their hat on, right? Like if you went to that work at the restaurant, you want to be able to hang your hat on what the boss will and won't do and what your job is and what it isn't and just how it works and what is happening. If you look at it that way and you look at something that we can all appreciate the importance of something like consistency. Okay. So consistency creates reliability and predictability, predictability and reliability create trust, trust. If it's patterned and it's consistent and maintained becomes a stabilizing force in a relationship. And yes, we're having relationships with our dogs. They're not just subjects for training and games and tricks and learning. They're social animals and trust matters. And so when we when we come to see the, the, the fallout of a lack of consistency, like you're describing, or the benefit of a simple consistency, we're re- we are talking about dominance because the initiative to be consistent is a behavior of being dominant and in control of the situation. We don't talk about it that way because that word has been so demonized. And, and trust me, I have just as much of a problem with the, de- the, the, the horrible things that have gotten attached with it. You know, the fact that people feel like dominance means a power struggle. And, and that's where we do have that difference between dominance and domineering. Dominance is, I got it. I'm on top of the situation like white on rice. I got it. Let me handle it. It's all under control. Domineering is you're fighting the other for control. And I, I describe to my in my clients that like domineering is a power struggle and you you can't you know, then be already in control of the situation. And conversely, dominance is you're already in control of the situation and you don't have to control the dog. Domineering tries to control you. Dominance controls the situation. Think about that. That's a really important distinguisher. Yeah, yeah, it's super important. And I think one of the other things I think about a lot when I talk to people about dominance is that 
generally with social animals, and you can jump in here if you've got something else to change or add, but my understanding is most dominance interactions, like the point of dominance is to reduce stress and conflict. And if you're having constant fights between your two dogs, dominance doesn't make much sense as the lens to look through there because the point of a dominance structure is to reduce those conflicts. So if your dogs are constantly fighting, that's not working. And there's either just potentially there is just some sort of like massive inconsistency in the structure that it is your job to step in. But when we make these assumptions of dog A is trying to steal dog B's food, so dog A needs to be put in his place and alpha rolled or shocked or whatever. Right. Like that's where the problem lies. But then, you know, it's, it's like, no, it is your job as a human to make sure that dog A and B are fed consistently in their spots, maybe yeah. with some separation if one of them eats way faster and is way more food driven than the other. Yeah. And I was that- just about to say that that's the difference is you proactively put them in separate rooms yeah. for feeding. That is your dominance, which is just good upper management of your environment. Okay. Whereas if you put two bowls next to each other or even in the same room day after day and your dogs are fighting over the food or one's going to steal the food and then you're, you are trying to control the dogs instead of the situation to go back to that same discrepancy um, or distinguishing factor is that, you know, it's, you're not stable if you're not proactive in control of the situation and demonstrating confident, consistent initiative towards circumstances. That's something your dogs can trust. And in that case, when there's more social stability, there will be less infighting among the individuals in the group. They, you may, however, still have two individuals that just decide they hate each other and your stability in the environment has absolutely no effect on what they're doing. I mean, that happens as well. Um, and that's why in nature, it's not like every social group is perpetually stable. They go through periods of stability, sometimes long periods of stability. If they have good upper management that lasts, there's a couple wolf parts, I mean, uh, wolf packs in Yellowstone that were very successful for a long time because they had a very stable social structure. Um, But then, of course, when one of those elders passes, you know, all bets are off and you can lose your territory again because now you have domineering conflicts. We think of them as dominance conflicts, but really domineering conflicts is what's happening when you're vying another for control. But dominance is kind of the event of already having it, right? If it makes sense. Like, like, so you can say that dog is dominant. And, and we talk about this too. I think this is important to bring up because this was, I was really, just about, I, I, we're going the same place. I was yeah. just about to that. Right. Do, we talk about dominance as a moment, right? Like, so people say, no, that dog won that interaction. So that dog is dominant in that moment. And that dominance is contextual, which it, it absolutely can be. And it is because if in this one situation, you know, um, that dog wins out over, uh, say the spot on the sofa. And then this other situation, the dog wins out over guarding their food bowl. Okay. That dog was dominant in that context. That dog was dominant in that context. Conversely, if my boss comes over to my house for dinner, all of a sudden, this is my ship. I run this. This is my house. The context can change all of the variables. Absolutely. So circumstances are going to affect it. There's no dog that is dominant, born dominant. There's no individual that is dominant, born born dominant. It's contextual. However, there are patterns of consistent dominance that then become stabilizing or destabilizing if in the lack of a pattern kind of forces. And depending on how consistent the stage is, well, now we're going to start getting more consistent patterns or not. So if we're always talking about 
the individuals living in my house, under my roof, in my family, that's a shared set of, of contexts. And there may be some variability within those contexts, but by and large, we're going to get more potential for stabilizing patterns than we will if we're going from my boss's restaurant to my household where things are that different. And I like to use the example in a zombie apocalypse where I'm trudging through the woods looking for water. I really hope my dog steps up to the plate because I won't be able to find it. <laughs> you know, and in some search situations, our pet dogs might actually have more knowledge of the circumstances, more initiative towards those circumstances. We come across a bear in the middle of the woods. Maybe your dog has more information and knowledge about how to handle it. And maybe they don't. It depends on the dog. It depends on you. It depends on the circumstances. Um, but I think it's important to stay flexible within that definition and also realize that the goal, just like with the restaurant or a family or with our dogs, should be a stabilized pattern of that consistent demonstration of our ability to control the variables and the circumstances in the environment in a way that behooves the whole group. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we've talked already on the podcast at least once about how dominance isn't really a personality trait. Um, you know, it, you can't be dominant as an individual because it's a, in the context of relationships within others in your group. Um, and I think a lot of times when I, you know, I'm in a bunch of different like adoptable dogs, Facebook groups sort of things. And my, I, I sometimes ask just because I'm genuinely kind of curious and getting to know the, the uh, getting to understand what people mean when they say these things more often is when people say, oh, th this dog's alpha, she can't go home with other alpha females. It's like, oh, you know, what are the traits that you're looking for to determine whether, you know, like what an other, or another alpha female is like, if I only had one female dog in my home, how would I know that this dog is not a good fit for me? Right. Um, and so I think then, right. then let's talk about some of the things that kind of indicate for us uh, or, or encourage us to make those kinds of projections, right? Whether we're close to the truth in our description or completely in left field, let's just, you know, talk about what, what people are seeing that makes them say stuff like that. Because I think, you know, our, our refusal to talk about things like whether an animal is social status conscious or whether they demonstrate initiative towards circumstances or whether they are controlling of the resources that are in their environment. Um, you know, it means that we might miss some really important observations about some things. Um, and, and I think at the same time, it goes way too far really quickly. But if we're talking about control of the situation and controlling of circumstances, then one might presume, which I think we can all agree happens a lot, that guardian and herding breeds, for instance, will show a higher propensity for stepping up to the dang plate and showing initiative towards circumstances that arise in the environment, because guess what? We bred them to. And, you know, and they, they we we joke that they're bossy or micromanagey or, you know, um, and, and controlling. But like, what is that? Is is that it's not dominance in the sense of like, oh, that animal wants to dominate. But maybe they demonstrate control over circumstances in the environment such that it's not actually erroneous to say that animal is behaving in a way that is dominant and in other words, we'll clash with another individual who is also trying to drive the ship and control the circumstances in the environment. So we might yeah. say them two bitches ain't going to get along very well because they're both control freaks. 
And if we're talking about controlling resources having to do with the fundamental definition of dominance, then we're not far from the truth. But because of all our connotations about dominance, we go down this weird path where we're like, oh, they both want to be the big dog in charge. And 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 really it's 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 not about like the desire for power that we make it out to be, right? right. That yeah. part is a human construct. Yeah. Well, and I know, um, so I live with a herding breed. I live with a border collie. Um, and I have found that for him, um, pretty consistently when I bring home really wiggly labs, really bouncy spaniels, really like bouncy over the top pointers, like all three of those breed groups in general tend to really stress him out. And he will herd them. He will stalk them. He gives them eye. He growls at them. He is so stressed out by that their presence. And I could look at that and say, he is trying to control resources and control this other dog. So that's dominant and domineering at the same time. But my interpretation with watching my own dog is that generally seems to be coming from a place of stress and anxiety. Uh-huh. You, know, right. like, you are stressing me out, man. Just sit down. It seems to be more of what he's saying than being like, I'm the leader in this situation. And I say that I sit on the left-hand side of the couch and you sit on the right side because well, that's right. Great. And the irony is, is that what, what that's about, and even the selection for herding um, pers- perspectives, if you will, or if we're talking about kind of perception and cognition of circumstances, is selected for a concern about environmental stability, which again, you could kind of label on the flip side, ethologically like dominance. Um And yet it's not about, even for your herding dog, if you really look at the motivation underneath it, there's a sense of urgency. It's not about like, it's, it's not this like power thing. In other words, if you could control that dog in your environment, I would argue your dog wouldn't feel the need to. It's the fact that it's a disruptive, unregulated force in the environment that makes it feel like the environment is not actually under control. So it's hard for the dog to not step up and grab the wheel of that that bus to try to control what's happening in the social environment. And interesting enough, domineering is what happens when you don't have the dominant card to play. So let's say he could push a button on the wall and all the spaniels would lay down on their spots. He would push the button on the wall. It's not about I want to be domineering and I want to front and posture you. It's domineering is what happens when we don't have that button to push. Here's the interesting thing about humans related to dogs. If we step into those shoes fully and we take responsibility for being the manager of that restaurant, then we have opposable thumbs. We have a really big brain that can put strategies and things in place to proactively manage for the arrival of that spaniel, proactively control the environment every time we have another spaniel come to our house for yet another board and train so that the border collie goes, all right, everything's under control. But it's hard and it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of anticipation about what do I need to think about to control the environment so my dog doesn't feel like they have to. So when I see dogs stepping up to the plate to be domineering, with other dogs or to try to be dominant towards circumstances in the environment. Again, dominant sounds like the wrong word, but it's pretty true to point if we're talking about controlling the situation and the resources and events. When you see that, that's an anxiety disorder. 
that's like what Karen Overall coined impulse control behavior and impulse control disorder in clinical behavior um, for small animals in, in that publication. And so, and but we don't look at that. We don't think it's it's really that grasping for straws phenomenon that happens when we feel like everything's not okay. And when we feel like everything is okay and the situation's under control, we don't have that reflexive impulse to micromanage everything. We talked about this last time also with, you know, the stress cleaning. We don't feel that compulsion to micromanage the circumstances and others because everything's okay. Yeah. I was just talking to a friend about this, how it feels like in COVID times, the, the closest thing I can remember to how I feel right now is senior year of college where all of my friends were going through breakups. They were trying to decide between grad schools or med school or a job and which job. And should they go to the better job that would mean to break up with their boyfriend or the less good job that would let them stay together. And like, I feel like COVID because we have so little control over our environment on a national and international level right now, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of my friends you know, and not even necessarily in a really neurotic way where it's, I, I mean, we certainly all are doing some of that as well, but I'm just seeing a lot of friends going through big life changes. And my theory is because it allows us to have some sort of exert some control on our environment. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said that because I've kind of marveled at how many people during COVID have made huge life changes. Now, we can argue that each one of those those is, is like their own impetus and, and uh, you know, drive and necessitating forces behind it that made them have to do it. But I will tell you, sitting there and consulting with 40 clients a week that are often just moving to my area, tons of people are making huge life changes. Or I'm consulting with clients I've had that have just moved to another city and now we're meeting remotely because we can do it virtually. And I think when, when things feel out of our control, then we often feel a sense of greater control by making huge life changes and, and making huge decisions. And somehow it feels like, okay, whew, all right, I got it. I, I have a plan, right? Because then we have something to focus on that makes us feel like I can control this. I can sign up for my master's degree, right? Like I, I can decide I'm going to launch a new program right now. Like I'm going to decide I'm going to, you know, have some harebrained idea, which happened to me this week, you know? And it's like the, the sense of satisfaction, like I will actually experience all sorts of positive feelings, emotions, um, even kind of weird projections of like, okay, everything is okay because, and within a human mind, I can describe it as I have these rationalized senses of security that might still be completely arbitrary that aren't going to make me more secure at all. But because I increase my life insurance, I feel like if I die, my family won't get kicked out of their house. And somehow that provided a sense of relief for me, even though they'd probably be fine either way. But when I feel like things are threatened, to create some sense of, um, okay, I, I've created some order out of the chaos makes us feel better. And so one of the things we need to look at, if we're looking at, say, impulse control behavior, which we can also then talk about what looks like, Karen Overall even says, this is what we used to call dominance in dog, dominance aggression or what have you. If we're looking at that, you have to realize there's a self-reinforcing component to exhibiting those behaviors. So that when your border collie is micromanaging the spaniel and he goes, blah, 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 and the spaniel goes and lays down, it feels like good for now. Good. The duck is back in the row. And then there'll be another moment where I have to do it again. 
And then the duck is back in the row. And so it becomes this weird self-fulfilling prophecy of, see, I need to control the environment because it does provide these short-term resolutions or perceptions of resolutions. If and, and so it's kind of like that whole idea too of giving the dogs or kids too much power is that if, if say the dog barks at you every time you pick up the phone and you can't hear your friend, so you put the phone down and the disruption of you getting up off the couch, sitting with the dog in the nice sunlight in the afternoon of you getting up to answer the phone and marching back and forth because you're pissed at your aunt Nancy about whatever. And now you're all stressed out and the dog's like, there's a problem. I see that there's a problem. You should get off the phone, get off the phone and sit back down. And then we get back off the phone. The dog is like, good, I fixed it. People would say your dog is being dominant. Maybe, right? That's one perception that some people that are kind of of that school of thought anyway might say, not so much our new positive reinforcement and ABA-minded, more scientific world. But um, so that's not true, but it is true. And the dog just wants to control the circumstances because it feels like the circumstances are out of control. So if you see that you getting up to take a phone call stresses your dog out, you could proactively put a pattern in place that says to your dog, I know it makes you feel a little bit jiggity whenever I'm on the phone with Nancy because she gets my blood boiling. So every time the phone rings, then this is what you're going to do. When the phone rings, I'm going to go get a certain stash of whatever's that I'm going to take you over to this certain spot and I'm going to leash you there with that chewy bone for the duration of my phone call. I mean, and that's an arbitrary example, but something just that predictable could make the dog feel like, okay, so this circumstance that otherwise makes things feel out of control is now a predictor of another pattern that feels. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I was kind of wondering about, um, as we were kind of thinking through kind of control and when we start really seeking control, um, because things are out of our control, you know, i.e. COVID is I wonder how much less that, and I, and I can answer this for myself, but I wonder what we think about it for our dogs. When my needs are being met, I don't seek control nearly so much. So if, you know, for example, during the Ebola crisis, I wasn't nearly as anxious as I am now because it wasn't actually really changing my life in a way um, that was detracting from, um, I'm a, a very extroverted person. And prior to COVID, I was taking three dance classes a week and going dancing on the weekends and none of that's happening anymore. Um, and I wonder, you know, if we're creating structure in our dog's lives in a way that also really, really meets their needs based on their genetics, that seems like that's the most important thing. And I think what, what we're kind of talking about is that some people fall into this camp of like, oh, we're just going to like let the dog do what they want and meet their needs as much as they can. The dog is in charge. The dog can do what it wants. And that creates anxiety in some ways because it's not enough structure. And then on the other side, there's just so much structure and not meeting the dog's needs. And like there has to be somewhere in the middle. Bingo. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is, that is the other piece of the puzzle. And so I will, I'll, I'll see a lot of that with clients, for instance, like, let's say, you know, um, I, I actually had a case that I posted a video on a forum uh, recently about with a puppy that was doing, you know, uh, puppy biting and mouthing and they were creating a behavior chain and reinforcing the behavior. And there was, you know, no sense of kind of uh, house rules or how things work or consistent control of the circumstances in the environment. Everything was just kind of up in the air. But upon working with the client, you realize immediately that 
this is a dog that they were literally creating for 22 hours a day. 22 hours a day. And they were told to by a trainer before they met with me to structure to your case in point, exactly what the, you know, to house train the dog and to make sure the dog didn't chew things that weren't appropriate and to make sure the dog had this nice schedule and regiment with the, with the crate. And I, I was like, Oh my gosh, you can't do that. No wonder he's so frustrated. Right? So yes, we have to step up and manage the environment to relieve the anxiety. But if those fundamental needs that welfare psychologically, behaviorally, and then of course, biologically is not being met, there's no way for an animal to be successful, even in the most structured environments. And, and so it is that like, okay, what are your, what are your actual needs? And, and what are my responsibilities for meeting all those needs, which includes appropriate opportunities and many of them for you to have autonomy. There's I've, I've buy my cars and buy my properties for my dogs, which you can call me crazy for, but I figure if I'm going to have these animals, it is my job to meet those needs. And so the first thing we do when we move into a new place is, fence the property that is our number one priority you know and we've had to do it twice unfortunately lately because of circumstances this year but it's everything to the quality of life of the animals and i can therefore you know in 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 that sense they have complete autonomy in that environment where i don't have to micromanage their experience with that in other words that's an environment i don't need to dominate and there's no need for them to get information from me about how to navigate those circumstances any more than your boss needs to navigate your home life, right? Because that can be their world and they they get to have the executive control over what they're doing. And then it's it's not even relevant to like the conditions that they're they're needing me to control for them because they don't have that information. They don't have the ability to show initiative that's appropriate towards those circumstances. They don't have the resources and faculty to navigate our human world, but that's our human world. They need us to be dominant in our human world because that is not their world. They are not equipped to drive that bus. That is actually our parental responsibility, if you ask me. But then we have to give them their world, their, their opportunity contextually to control those, oh, those circumstances that are appropriate and intuitive and instinctual and not even necessary for them. Yeah, Absolutely. I think we should just end it there. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I I am loving having these conversations with you, Kayla. Your mind is amazing. And I just, I'm learning so much about even my own thought processes and work talking to you. So thank you for having me again. Yeah. No, I mean, thank you so much. Um, I have a very selfish question to ask before we sign off. Where, so you, you're, you're an applied ethologist, what what did did you do that in undergrad? How did you get to where you are? I want to do more ethology. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like um, there's a, a, a college in, called Warren Wilson here in Western North Carolina, and it is one of the few colleges in the country that has an. And do you know about it? Yeah, my my favorite college professor um, teaches there now. She left my water. Uh, Liesl Erb. Oh, really? Okay, so they yeah. must have come after I left. Yeah, she's in the biology department. She did uh, pica research in relation to climate change and is just oh. an amazing woman. Um, oh, she had awesome. a dog that lived to 12. 
you guys would love each other. <laughs> oh my God, I'll have to reach out and go go meet her. But um, so Warren Wilson is this really well kept secret where they have a degree called integrative studies, which at the time, particularly the all sorts of different industries were kind of not industries but fields, um, were were kind of developing uh, that were new. So say like someone wanted to do say a sustainable agriculture degree and get a four-year degree in sustainable agriculture, what they had to do was you have to pull from all of the core uh, courses that are offered there, and then you have to propose uh, a degree for something that's a legitimate field, but just something that's not offered either at the university or in, in general. And in this case, it wasn't even offered in the United States. So short of going to Europe, I couldn't get an applied ethology degree. Um, and so uh, we longhand named it the applied relationship between human and animal behavior. Um, and the whole course uh, consisted of tons of independent studies. And then like, I had to do more work than anyone in, the, in my classes. So if we were like, say, my psychology or sociology or ethics classes or animal behavior and learning classes or learning and conditioning classes or whatever. I had to read additional materials, write extra papers. Um, and, and honestly, that's even just where it began. Because for me, that the, the integrated discipline of applied ethology set me off on this journey that made me hungrily search down all of these different scientific paths and continue to learn how to integrate them so that, you know, my bedside reading would be something like epigenetics or neuroethology or, you know, something similar along those lines where I was constantly having to figure out, as I did in my original coursework, how to take a book that wasn't talking about dog behavior and human and animal relationships with dogs and extrapolate whatever that was to that context. And that's really what applied ethology is all about. You're taking yeah. ethology and you're extrapolating it to that context where you have to keep all of these variables in mind at all times and put equal weight on the human element and those environmental um, variables as you do with the animal's behavior. Very different from the top-down model we have here of like the puppeteer model, which I'm, it, I'm not saying that, you know, it's incorrect, but we stand in my perspective, opinion, we start with the wrong questions sometimes in animal behavior in this country where we start with questions of what and then how and not a whole lot of why and if, like why are they doing it and if we should modify it in the first place, you know, um, where we give it more integrity in its own right first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That actually sounds somewhat similar to what I did in undergrad where my degree is actually in organismal ecology, evolution, and biology, I think. Um, but I ended up my junior and senior year taking classes almost exclusively within the psych department. Um, and ended, like, just because I managed to get a bunch of my prereqs out of the way, and, like, I managed to end up really combining the two. And we had a couple, I actually didn't, wasn't introduced to ABA until after I graduated college, um, because I wasn't in an animal behavior program at all. It was, you know, I was in I had a uh, cognition class. I had a learning and adaptive behavior class. I had a neuroethology class. I had an evolutionary psychology class. And they all did both human and animal models, but none of them was focused on dog behavior. So I actually feel like I was kind of lucky in that I had such a, my academic background previous to graduating college, at least, didn't include ABA at all. So I feel like I came in with more diversity versus like if I had just jumped straight into the IABC principles and practice course, which is fabulous. Um, you know, that would have then been kind of my only lens. 
Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I kind of just be able to go back and forth, you know, and like, that, that's the same, same thing that I felt like I got the benefit of was like when, when you're integrating all those lenses rather than just kind of going through the motion. And, and, and really, I, I think the U S kind of has a bit of this tendency where we don't cross pollinate very well in the sciences. Like we tend to really specialize and be like, you know, this is what you're going to study in, in neurology or biology or genetics or behavior. And there's not, in my opinion, enough cross pollinization. It's gotten better in recent years. And there's more and more undergraduate and graduate programs that do a really good job. You know, some neuroethology is a great example. You're just like, because that's a thing, because it really matters that we talk about the intersection of those two well, phenomena. And what a cool class. I mean, right. and that's, I feel the same way about like neuroendocrinology is like Robert Sapolsky and his books on behave is like my all time favorite book. And it's not about dogs at all, but just like, oh my God, he like takes it from, you know, kind of what we're talking about with ethology, but he goes everywhere from genetic evolutionary history to personal genetic history, you know, with your recent relatives to your early, like, hormonal experiences, right up until the hormones that are in your body at the moment where you decide yeah. to make a decision. It is mind-blowing. Right. It's mind so Right, I know. And, like, so Simone de who's also similar, you know, he's also a neuroendocrinologist. Oh, my gosh, he's amazing. And, he's like, so you hear him talk and you're just, like, gosh, it's so crazy that we can ever look at this through just one lens. And I think at the heart of all of this, what I feel like makes me an applied ethologist at heart is because I am a relentlessly curious person. Like it's never enough. Like you said, why am I going back to school? Because I want to know more. Like, and that's really the spirit of of getting closer to the truth by asking more questions rather than buckling down on thinking we have the answers um, so that we're always willing to look outside of our comfort zone for, for more insights into whatever it is that we're doing in our work. And, and I think that spirit would be, um, it would be really fruitful in our industry, right? Where we're trying to help people understand what's going on with their dogs instead of looking at it just, just through that one lens. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get a lot by, by extrapolating out to the bigger picture of, you know, legs and that, that whole learning environment, genetics and self model where there's room for all those fields. And on that note, I want to put in a small pitch to um, the uh, course that we're doing at Wolf Park in August uh, I had a three-hour Zoom call with the, the staff there yesterday. This is turning into such a phenomenal vision, uh, and, and we are even working together on not just putting together that seminar, but we're going to be putting together kind of a webinar series of um, – uh, kind of a memorial series to Ray Coppinger and bringing people together from all these different disciplines to literally sit at that four-legged table and talk about things from all of the perspectives, taking a topic and having experts sit down and have a discussion. Um, and that's very much the spirit of the Wolf Park certification course and family dog mediation that we're going to be doing next August for people who want to learn how to continue to integrate, how to continue to look outside and think outside and practice outside the box of behaviorism. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I will be sure to be linking that as well as a lot of the other stuff we mentioned. You know, I'll link Warren Wilson. I'll link Robert Sapolsky. I'll obviously be linking Kim's book. Um, and, uh, I think we need to wrap it up. I know I have another call in four minutes. Um, yeah. I think you said you had an hour, like an hour and a half ago. Yeah. So I'm yeah. gonna let you go. <laughs> but thank you so much, Kim. And um, 
if people feel like they need to hear Kim and I talk about more stuff, always feel free to just comment wherever you find this podcast and we'll, we'll do it. Yeah. It's a blast. Thanks again. uh, Yeah. If you've got anything else to plug, I'll let you do it. And then I'll close this out. No, I'm good. You know, check out the book, check out the, um, the many podcasts. Cause there's there for whatever reason, exploding people clearly want to hear about ethology and all this stuff. So that's great. And definitely check out the wolf park stuff that's going on. Very exciting. Yeah. Awesome. And you guys know where to find me. I'm Kayla Froud at journeyingdogtraining.com. As you already know, make sure that you guys like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. Tell a friend. Um, We will be dropping this around holiday time. So hopefully this is a fun visit as you're, you know, cooking a turkey for for two or (laughs) (laughs) if you've successfully quarantined yourself and you are going to be visiting family responsibly during your drive or, you know, whatever whatever it's going to be, hopefully we can uh, take your mind off of everything else with some just nerdy dog stuff. So um, thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you, Kim, for being here. Thank you.